Welcome to Equipping the Body. I'm Dr. Brad Starnes, and today we're continuing through the book of Luke, and we've come now to Luke 5, 33 through 39. And I love this story because the way it lays out, it's the story, and this is my title. It's a little bit of a tongue twister, but you'll, it'll make sense as we go. Christ corrects his critics concerning the covenants. Christ corrects his critics concerning the covenants. Now, his critics are the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. We know who Christ is, and he's correcting them. What are they confused about? The covenants. They're trying to force people into the old covenant when the new covenant has come. And so I try to put the big idea in the title itself. Christ corrects his critics concerning the covenants. Now, let's read the text. Luke 5.33. Then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled. The wineskins will be ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine immediately, desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, What's going on here is Jesus is confronted over the issue of fasting, and um, he corrects these critics. And so in order to understand this narrative, I've broken it into three parts, okay? The examination of the critics, verse 33, the explanation of the Christ, verses 34 through 35, and then the comparison of the covenants, verses 36 through 39. So the first thing we see is the examination of the critics in verse 33. It says, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Our text begins with the examination of the critics. They are examining Christ and the behavior of his disciples. So before we can go any further with what their examination was, we must first ask who Luke is referring to when he says they. Well, considering in the previous passage Jesus was responding to the Pharisees and Luke says, then they said, we can rightly assume it's the Pharisees, but not the Pharisees only because Mark and Matthew record this same story and tell us that the, John, the disciples of John the Baptist were with them as well. So the examination of the critics, well, what about it? Well, first let's consider the insinuation of their examination. What exactly are they insinuating? They're insinuating that Christ and his disciples are unrighteous, that they're not as holy as the Pharisees or John the Baptist's disciples. For we know that the Pharisees twice uh, fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. The Pharisees would fast on these two days from sunup to sundown. Now why is that? Especially considering the only required fast was on the Day of Atonement per Levi uh, Leviticus 16, 29-34. And even then, fasting only lasted a day. Now, that's not to say that there aren't examples of long fast in the Old Testament. For example, Moses and Elijah both fasted for 40 days. 
Yet nowhere in the law was a Jew required to fast two days every week. This was an example of one of the, quote, rules added to the word of God by the Pharisees. Remember, it's estimated that they added over a thousand rules in addition to the written word of God that were in existence in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were all about outward religious appearance and elevating themselves above others. They maintained what we would call a holier-than-thou attitude. Moreover, when the Pharisees fasted, they made sure everyone knew. And that directly contradicts Jesus' instruction to fast in secret. The purpose of fasting is to deprive oneself of food in exchange for a deeper devotion to prayer and to God in order that God may more readily and rapidly respond to one's prayer. Fasting in and of itself is a great thing. However, the Pharisees had perverted it into a point of pride. They fasted to show that they were oh so righteous and pious. So then by asking why Jesus' disciples do not fast, they are insinuating that Jesus' disciples and Jesus himself are sinful. So the insinuation of their examination. Secondly, the motivation of their examination. We know what they were getting at, but why were they getting at it? Simply for this reason. Jesus was a threat to their power and their religious system that they held so tightly. Jesus came and preached liberty and freedom and the grace of God. Now freedom to sin, uh, excuse me, now not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. And the Pharisees had a grip over the common practice in Jew. They enforced their made-up rules upon the common man. And it was legalism. They added to the word of God, which is just as evil as taking away. So the motivation of their examination was to tear down Jesus, to trick him, to prove him false, so they thought. They did this all the time. Because Matthew tells us in Matthew twenty-two fifteen in another scenario, he writes, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him, that being Jesus, in his talk. So we see the examination of the critics, the insinuation of their examination, and the motivation of their examination. Considering these things, we're reminded that the true believer in Christ does not fast, pray, go to church, or read the Bible, etc. out of duty, but out of devotion. He does not do these things with an attitude of them being a burden or to prove himself to God, but out of joy because he loves God. Unlike the Pharisees who missed the spirit of the law by focusing on the letter of the law. And so the Pharisees did everything out of duty. God's people do it out of devotion. So let me ask you a question. Why do you pray, read your Bible, go to church, etc.? Is it because you're trying to earn God's favor, as the Pharisees were? That will never work. For we are not saved by works, but by grace. It's not by merit, but by mercy. That doesn't mean that we should not do these things. Of course we should, but our motivation should be out of devotion to Jesus. In other words, we enjoy these things. We pursue God not to be saved, but we pursue God because we are saved. That is the fundamental difference between a ritualistic religion and a righteous relationship. So not only the examination of the critics, but as Jesus responds, we find the explanation of the Christ. In response to his critics' examination, Christ offers an explanation. Luke writes, And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. 
Now, you may wonder what kind of explanation is that, or why is he talking about a wedding? Well, his explanation consists of two components, and we're going to look at each one in order to understand the explanation of the Christ. First of all, it was an explanation through parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus loved to use parables in teaching. Essentially, they were illustrations to make a spiritual point. Now, why he uses two parables in this passage, we're concerned with the first. Christ explains to the critics that his disciples have no reason to fast because the bridegroom is with them. So clearly, he uses a wedding parable, himself being the bridegroom, and the friends of the bridegroom or the children of the bridegroom are the disciples. Now, appreciate this parable. We must understand something of Jewish weddings. When couples were married in ancient Palestine, they did not go far away for their honeymoon. They stayed home and essentially partied for a week. Sometimes they would even wear crowns in celebration of their wedding. They would never again in their lives have such a week, and the friends that attended the festivities were known as the children or the friends of the bridegroom. A wedding was a time for feasting, not for fasting. It was a time for rejoicing, not mourning. Jesus is making the point that his disciples have every reason to celebrate because the bridegroom is there. He's with them. He's looking them in the eyes. It's time to party. It's time to rejoice, not mourn. Yet he's simply not rejoicing to be rejoicing. Consider the original question of fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer were seen as ways, and rightly so, of access to God. Jesus says the disciples are with me. They don't need to fast. Why? Now think about that for a moment. Fasting is, is a way to draw closer to the Lord, if done in the right spirit, etc. And Jesus says they don't need to fast because they're with me. Well, that can only mean one thing. That Jesus is equal to God. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying because Jesus on another occasion said, I and my Father are one. John said, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And so, in other words, just like when we're in heaven, there won't be any point of fasting because we'll be looking God uh, face to face. We'll behold Him. We'll be with Him, literally, in person, live action. And Jesus says, why would you fast? You're with the bridegroom. Now, what's also interesting about that is in Isaiah 54, the bridegroom of Israel is God in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 16 depicts Israel as a wife to the Lord God. Therefore, by claiming to be the bridegroom and saying that fasting's pointless when you're with the bridegroom, Jesus was claiming to be the very same God of the Old Testament, which was a fulfillment of, um, of prophecy that, that the Messiah would come. And so think about that. Jesus, the explanation of the Christ through parable, the parable of a wedding, not only through parable, but through prophecy. He says the time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. What's he referring to? His coming death on the cross when the disciples would be separated from him for three days and three nights as he would die and be buried. And so he said, then they will fast, for the bridegroom will be taken away. But also there is a double uh, prophecy in this, because after the resurrection, he was taken away from them again. No, not taken away uh, in the sense that they, we don't have Christ, but taken away in the sense of in person at the ascension. And so either way, the point is this, that while Jesus is not physically here on earth, there's a reason to fast. 
But when he returns, it will be as it was in the days of the apostles, and there will be no need to fast, for the king will be literally face-to-face with us. What a marvelous truth that is. And so we see the examination of the critics, the insinuation, their motivation. We see the explanation of the Christ. He explained it through parable and through prophecy. And then finally, we come to verses 36 through 39, and we see the comparison of the covenants. We've come to the crux of the confrontation. What was really going on? I'll tell you, the old covenant was passing and the new covenant was emerging. The law was being fulfilled and the full revelation of God was coming to fruition in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God communicated to man through the law and the prophets. Israel was to uphold the religious rituals, which were supposed to, though they often did not, reflect the relationship in the hearts of the people to God. However, Israel, now like the Pharisees, had misunderstood and misapplied the old covenant. They had perverted it into a false gospel of works-based salvation. What's worse, many of the works they did were not even in the Old Testament to begin with. And so Christ uh, compares, excuse me, I got tongue twisted. Christ compares the covenants. Now, how does he do that? Well, he offers a comparison by illustration, and he gives two illustrations. And they both are meant to be seen side by side. They're meant to convey the same thing. We see this often, especially in the Psalms, what's known as Hebrew parallelism, where it will be two different illustrations or two different metaphors, but they both have the same point. And so they should not be understood as talking about two different ideas or two different things. And Jesus, uh, of course, being a Hebrew himself, is invoking that here. He gives two illustrations, but the both illustrations are talking about the same thing. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. Well, the first illustration, he talks about you don't sew new cloth onto an old garment. Because as you know, when it washes, the new cloth will shrink, uh, and the old cloth will be torn from it, and the tear will be made worse. And then he says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Well, wineskins in that day were made out of goat skin by the way and when you put wine in them and the wine would begin to ferment the gas that were given off by fermentation would expand the skin which is all fine well and good it's what it was designed to do the problem is once you took a skin through that process you could not use it again if you were going to make another batch of wine you had to go get new wine skin because once it expanded again it would burst the old wine skin because these skins could only expand one time. And so the Jewish winemakers and all the ancient winemakers, for that matter, in Palestine, they knew that. It was common. Jesus was not dropping an A-bomb on them. This was common knowledge that you don't put new wine into old wine skins or else you'll tear up the skins and, and spill the wine. And both will be ruined. What's his point? His point is this. That the new covenant had come. The old covenant was not bad, it was not wrong, but it was done. It was fulfilled. The new covenant had come. What is the new covenant? Personal salvation by faith through Jesus Christ, that He that God has come to man, that God has made it easier for man to be saved, better for man to be saved, that the veil has been torn, that the sacrificial system has been fulfilled, that it, it is far easier now to be saved than it was in the old economy God has come to man and so this is 
new. This is better. This is superior. That's why the book of Hebrews says that Christ is a better high priest, a better sacrifice. And when you take the works of the law and the rituals of the Old Testament that are dead, that Christ fulfilled, like the Sabbath law, like the law against eating shellfish, all these ceremonial, now the moral law is permanent. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, sexual sin, uh, murder. These are moral laws that are reiterated in the New Testament, thus making them permanent. But the ceremonial laws, like don't mix fabrics, don't grow two different crops in the same field. Those are gone. Those are done. And that's what the New Testament teaches. Paul says those ceremonial laws, they were just a shadow. Well, how do I know the difference between ceremony and moral, and moral laws? Well, it's really pretty self-explanatory. Moral laws that actually have something sinful to them and are not just a way of doing things. And secondly, if they're reiterated in the New Testament, then they are moral laws in most cases. So, anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off track here. But the point is, Jesus was comparing uh, the covenants and correcting his critics. Because, see, that's what the Pharisees did. They, they wanted to keep these, these old uh, ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and force them on people. And, and that was bad, but what was worse is they also had these old laws that weren't laws at all. It was just stuff they had made up. It was a mess. And that's what happens when you try to mix truth with error. When you try to mix New Testament Christianity with the fulfilled ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, much like the Seventh-day Adventists do. That's why they come out with some wacky stuff. You're not Jewish. Those things don't apply to you. Jesus fulfilled them. Just like Jesus told Peter, don't tell me what not to eat is unclean. That, that stuff's done. The old covenant, the ceremonial laws, they serve their purpose. They're done. They're fulfilled. And so you have the comparison of the covenants. Now, how does this apply to us? Simply this, that we need to understand that the new covenant is the covenant of grace. It is by faith in Christ that we are saved, not by works of the law. And second, and like unto that, that these, these ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, um, again, I'm not talking about the moral laws. It's always wrong to kill. It's always wrong to steal. I'm talking about the ceremonial laws. We cannot force them into New Testament Christianity because they're fulfilled. Now, you say, Pastor, I've never even, that's never been an issue for me. Well, maybe not. But ultimately, what was at play here is an issue. And that's the idea that somehow our works save us. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so that was another part of their misunderstanding. They thought if we do more and more and more and more good, we earn more and more of God's favor. But that's not how it works. If you want God's favor, you've got to be washed in the blood of his son. And so 
we see Christ corrects his critics concerning the covenants. We saw the examination of the critics, the insinuation of their examination, and the motivation of their examination. We saw the explanation of the Christ. He explained his point through parable, but also through prophecy. And then lastly, we saw a comparison of the covenants. It was a comparison by illustration. Now, sadly, the Pharisees failed to understand the comparison and failed to realize the explanation of Christ concerning the covenants because we find this last verse, and no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. In other words, the Pharisees were hung up on the old wine, and they could not. They, that's why they never got saved because they, they were, it was not just the old wine they were hung up on. It was their twisted view of the old wine. And yet they, they automatically thought, well, this new is wrong. This, this, this new covenant is wrong. This Jesus character is wrong. They could not let go of their man-made tradition and receive the revelation of God. And the ironic thing is this. Is Jesus uses the language new. Yes, it was new in that it was coming to f fulfillment. But it wasn't new in the sense that it was uh, out of nowhere. God told them in the Old Testament that he would send the Messiah. God told them that, that, that there was something else coming. Someone else, we should say, and that was Jesus. So, so the, the the sad irony is what they thought to be new, and even though Jesus uses this word "new" again, he doesn't mean out of nowhere. He means uh, that it, it it is coming on the scene as it was previously concealed. They just couldn't accept that. Now, they were trusting in their works. And so we must ask this question. What are you trusting in to get to heaven? Do you believe you have done enough good? You haven't and you can't. Let me boil it all down to this one statement. Faith alone and Christ alone saves alone. New wine. New wine. The new covenant of grace. The gospel. That's the only way to be saved. Christ corrects his critics concerning the covenants.